Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast, where we look at the trends impacting mid-sized companies and the influencers behind their success. I'm Deborah Cohen, Editor-in-Chief of Middle Market Growth Magazine. Joining me is Katie Mulligan, the magazine's Associate Editor. Katie, who'd you talk to for the podcast this week? Hey, Deb. I spoke with Andrew Appel, the president and CEO of IRI, which is a company that provides data and analytics solutions and services uh, for clients that are both huge Fortune 100 companies as well as small and mid-sized businesses. As you know, the January issue of the magazine uh, was centered around retail and a lot of the fast-paced disruption that's happening within that industry. So I asked Andrew about how he's seeing companies use analytics to stay competitive And we also talked about how IRI itself has fostered a culture of innovation internally. The company was founded in the late 70s, so it's really had to evolve into a modern tech enterprise. Wow, it sounds like they are um, on top of a lot of predictive trends. So let's, um, let's get into what sounds like a very interesting conversation. Here's Katie talking with Andrew Appel of IRI. I am here with Andrew Appel, President and CEO of IRI. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. So for those unfamiliar with IRI, can you talk briefly about the company and your offerings? Sure. Um, So IRI is a big data and analytics firm that's been around for close to 40 years that operates in the center of the ecosystem around consumer packaged goods companies, retailers that work in that arena like grocery retailers or major retailers like Target and Walmart or e-commerce players and then um, uh, major ad advertisers and media companies like the big agencies at WPP or Google etc. Um, so we provide um, we have a lot of unique data assets a lot of unique technology that has grown up providing services to the manufacturing community like this LaCroix sitting in front of you Um, But over the last five years has migrated very much towards um, the places people actually shop, partnering with the big retailers in the country and around the world to help them use data analytics to get closer to consumers, grow their businesses, and then use that same kind of network of data and information to help advertisers, media companies, publishers, and networks you know, figure out which consumers should see which promotions or advertisements based on purchase history and purchase behavior. And your website says that 95% of CPG retail and health and beauty companies in the Fortune 100 work with IRI. What share of your customer base is small and mid-sized businesses and how are the data and analytics needs different for your large clients versus the smaller set? You know, to be honest with you, our relative market share is bigger with mid and small size companies and manufacturers than it is with the Fortune 100. So even though we work with probably 95%, some of which we have very deep partnerships and some of which we provide different analytic services to, um, we I think our client base in the US is over a thousand. Um, and we have a lot more call it relative capability to fast growing mid-size manufacturing companies. So a Kind Bar, Vita Coco, or Ferrara, which is here in Chicago. Um, And their needs are 
different in the sense that they don't have the same resources or they don't have the same amount of money to spend to figure out um, what's you know what their pricing optimization be or their assortment or their modeling and their per- merchandising they certainly don't have the same resources to work with big retailers they don't have big teams that support a Kroger or whatever and they mm-hmm. don't have the same um, internal capabilities to do the analytics around you know media and advertising and they generally don't have the same size budgets um, and what we do is you know be, is provide and effectively you think of it as an on-demand version of those capabilities. So our, call it liquid data environment and liquid data platform as a technology platform has, um, you know, the ability to serve really big companies through highly sophisticated custom analytics around all those things, um, but also the ability to take, um, you know, the 10 big things that a Pepsi might do and give a mid-sized company you know, on-demand access to that through pre-wired algorithms, pre-wired reports, pre-wired solutions, you know, highly prescriptive tools and techniques Mm -hmm. such that, um, you know, a company that's 200 million, you know, if it has the interest and energy can get a lot of the same things done that a $2 billion company can do because of the, you know, flexibility of our technology platform and the fact that we have, you know, servicing people that will cover multiple accounts. And the same thing on the retail side, um, a little less so, frankly. We work with every retailer in the United States in consumer packaged goods, but the platform uh, that we provide um, will scale down to those retailers. But as we've been, you know, investing heavily in retail, we probably have started with the bigger ones and worked our way down. So mm. we have a lot bigger presence with let's say the top 25 retailers in our country <clears throat> in terms of a value-added partner than the next 25 where we're basically, you know, we per- and we procure their data for our solutions. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And let's drill down into retail a little bit more. Um, you wrote a piece for our January-February issue of the magazine, which was themed on retail specifically, um, and you wrote about the power of data in helping brick-and-mortar retailers compete amid some of the disruption that's happening in the industry. Can you talk about how retailers are leveraging analytics to target customers? Yeah, look, I think the history of retail has been that the product companies for decades have been the primary source of insights and analytics for major retailers up until like the last five years. So if you think about the history of the ecosystem between let's say the Pepsis and Cokes of the world and the Walmarts and the Albertsons of the world, Um, the locus of all the insights and analytics had traditionally been with the manufacturing companies. And so the retailers were much, much thinner and had invested much less money over over time in those kinds of analytic capabilities. And what we've done is we've basically brought a package of capabilities, the same models that we'd built up over decades working with the big product companies to the retailers. And their interest level is high because um, they're biggest competitors, which is the, you know, Googles and the Amazons and the e-commerce companies are, grew up as analytic companies and grew up on, you know, modeling out the multi-characteristics of, you know, things you do, what what drives, you know, people to buy stuff. So there, there's a big investment going on in leveraging data analytics to understand relative share, relative pricing, which products are growing quickly, and then, you um, 
you know, what, how I leverage the fact that one of my most unique assets as a retailer is I have people that come in my stores every day and I know an immense amount about them through the loyalty programs that they're participating in. And how do I leverage that understanding to create much deeper, personalized, connected relationships with consumers so that I can provide that kind of one-to-one experience that you might get on a website, but in a kind of multi-platform store experience. And on the topic of social media, we've we've kind of heard mixed things here at Middle Market Growth in terms of how mid-sized retailers are able to use social media to effectively target consumers. What trends are you seeing there? Are you are you seeing this being an effective way for them to to reach consumers? Is there still a lot of work to be done? Are they still kind of figuring that piece out? What are your observations in that space? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um most retailers, with the exception of the really large ones, um, you know, are in the process of building their own brands. They have very mm-hmm. local brands, and to use social media and get effectiveness out, it is less of a local game, right? It's more of a national network effect. And so I think, um, you know, they are, my gut is they are earlier in the journey of social media than some, like, let's say a Pepsi with a Lay's campaign or, mm-hmm. you know, an Anheuser-Busch with its Dilly Dilly campaign. That's a very multi-channel kind of um, demand creation event, right? Now that said, so I think that my gut is they're earlier, but their opportunity is actually, interestingly, I think larger. Um, so we are working with a lot of retailers or beginning to work or maybe bringing the idea or throwing out crazy ideas about the connectivity between social media platforms and the retailers consumer insights we just talked about. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a big retailer and I do what we just talked about, which is I understand more about the people that come shop in my stores and shop than any other you know, company out there. And then I approach the social media environment and say, well, now let's connect what you know about how consumers are behaving in their social media environment or how they're communicating with with how they're behaving in my stores. And that's a connection that is, that is um, unique to retailers or companies that sell products and have an understanding of it. And I think it's a huge opportunity for, for our retail clients to create much more connected relationships with some of these interesting social prop capabilities. I mean, Pinterest is one that we think is very interesting, right? Hmm. And they all are, by the way, we don't want to offend anybody, but <laughs> Pinterest happens to be an interest site. And so a lot of the behavior and the categories they're in, furniture, health, recipes, and food, are pre-buying kind of interest sites, right? Hmm. The entire concept is that people are... Sh- learning about things they might want to do, and I use do carefully, not buy, before they actually do it, in contrast to other platforms, which are much more about ad platforms that are more traditional, like a YouTube and even a Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. Pinterest is interesting. It's an interest site. And so if you can figure, if you're like a whatever, furniture retailer or a health retailer whatever, you know, or a, you know, a food retailer, and you're looking for where the trends are and which types of consumers and the patterns, imagine if you can connect your 
your insights and your 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 the stuff you know about consumers with the stuff Pinterest knows about consumers. Hmm. IRA has published several reports that look at differences across generations in terms of their attitudes towards shopping and their behaviors. What are some of the findings that that have come out of those? One of the interesting ones, and it's really an interesting question, it's early findings, right? Mm -hmm. As millennials and Generation Z and the next generations, they grow up, what are they going to look like? Are they going to retain their unique behavior patterns or are they going to, as they get, follow the pattern of the rest of us and have relationships in some way, shape or form and, and you know, get married or, or partnered up and then have or have kids, will they look like the, you know, baby boomers of today? Hmm. Um, a lot of our research early suggests they will, that the purchase behaviors, the places people shop as they mature through their, you know, life starts to look more like it did in our life being older than their life being younger. Mm -hmm. So, so we actually think there is, um, you know, a position for, you know, a brick and mortar retailers next to e-commerce retailers that'll look more like how this group around the table shops today um, than, you know, the younger consumer shop today. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of what we've been reading is, you know, there's so much of, the, you know, the demise of the brick and mortar retailer, but a lot of what we're seeing now is it's not so much the demise as the evolution. It's going to be there, but it looks different. It's more experiential, just has different characteristics than maybe a tr we think of traditional brick and mortar retailers. Yeah, look, I think... You'll if you're a quote brick and mortar retailer, which one you're going to see it blend because I think, um, you know, we will crack the retailers will crack the code of what they would call omni-channel. You know, we have a view. I think that you know in the grocery area, the European click and collect model where people order and pick up, you know, has a better chance of of long-term success than the in-home delivery models. There'll be a place for both. But in the end, if you're an economist, you would argue that um, it's materially more efficient for me to go pick it up than it is for you to deliver it to me, mm -hmm. given just gas. Now, some would say when autonomous cars and Uber, then the labor goes out of the driving force. Drone delivery. That, look, I gave a whole talk two years ago about the fact that, like, why do you think Amazon is playing around with drones, right? They're trying to take the day out of delivery. And you see it come to fruition. That was four years ago. And, mm -hmm. I was, and people were like, what? And I'm like, look, if they can, you know, get you something in a minute, then you have, or an hour, then you that's the last barrier of speed that you're, you have, which is like, you know, the Walgreens or the Jewel is down the block from you and Amazon takes a day. So mm -hmm. if you actually need it the next day, you'll go. And then once you're there, you'll pick up a bunch of other stuff. Um, so I think the, um, but to your question, I think as the convenience, like as the e-commerce world takes over some of those convenient shopping trips and those spontaneous shopping trips where you're looking for an obscure item and all of us just like go to one place and buy it, then I think you have to have a reason to go to a traditional retailer and you have to have a high quality experience 
um, so that you go back. So I do agree that I think whether it's grocery retailers experimenting with, you know, like more food, more prepared food, or even restaurants. So you become a destination. Like that Friday night trip that everybody used to go to the grocery store, people, you know, increasingly go out to dinner and just order their stuff in some other way. And so there's a group of grocery retailers that are trying to make themselves a destination. Hey, pop by here. Mm -hmm. Then there's a group, you know, you saw some of them, like Costco's clearly... Um, been really successful in the last year, right? And the demise of brick and mortar retail, Costco grew at 9% same stores last quarter. So you're like, okay, well, it's not fully demise because there is a group of people that value bulk, you know, like one-stop shopping at a very low price with that little, like, you know, you know, Costco's whole thing is you're going to have some discovery there, right? So you're going to like, oh, like, I really need you know, plastic golf clubs today. I didn't even know I needed it, but there they are, like right at the checkout, or or I need, you know, 40 pounds of chocolate-covered pretzels. And I'm like, God, I didn't know I needed it, but there they are, and they're only like $9.99 for 12 pounds of chocolate-covered pretzels. So I'm going to pick those up on the way out, right? And so it's like this huge value play plus this like little experiential, you know, you go, I mean, people like, like, I don't know about you, but my, my wife, we go to the car. Like, people just go. It's no, like, I was just like going to say, people... I'm falling within the millennial cohort, and I would say there is definitely cachet to having a Costco membership. Yeah, like, you that go. Is some it's something. Cred, like, so people go Saturday to... <laughs> morning, they go together. I have friends with a couple. It's like their thing. So that's one. <laughs> then you have Target, which is, um, you know, continue, you know start had a couple of three, four good quarters, and they're, they're moving back, and they had some same-store sales growth, and that's clearly a kind of holistic kind of improvement to the in-store experience, I would say. Brian's mm-hmm. pushing very hard on the in-store experience. And also the multi, you know, they're investing heavily in e-commerce and they had a good e-commerce quarter. And so they're, you got the very biggest and then you got Amazon buying retailers. You're like, okay, so this is all kind of going to converge in some interesting ways. But in the end, you know, we just have a bit, you know, people, you got to provide the experience that the consumers want and people are, needs are getting more sophisticated and more nuanced. And you mentioned um, that IRI is not a new kid on the block to this space. How do you keep up with the evolving pace of technology for a company that has been around for many years? Um, you know, constantly retesting your assumptions about what you're doing. We're out there at the edge pushing ideas that haven't yet come to fruition. So by nature, you know, when I talked about the Pinterest and retailers, like we're bringing those ideas to these companies. And so that gives us a small amount of inherent at being at the edge because we're trying to be innovators. We're trying to kind of always come up with next generation solutions that have an economic value to the participants and nobody's ever done before. Mm. So that that gives you some sense that you, it may be a terrible idea sometimes, but at least it's at the edge of where people are thinking about how to use data and analytics to drive growth. You know, I, I just gave a talk to our whole team about just the question, right? So mm-hmm. a constant paranoia about am I getting it right? Am I missing something? You know, breeding a culture where like everybody gets, you know, feels comfortable questioning particularly the strategic thematic direction Hmm. 
Um, you know, you can't question like, hey, this product seems to work. You're a salesperson. You need to sell it. Um, but if they come back and say, I've talked to 10 customers and it doesn't work, then you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe we got that one wrong. Let's go back to the drawing board very quickly and come up with a different iteration of the same concept. Um, so those two things, right? Trying to always be at the edge of the business. And we are fortunate we operate, A, in, in the U.S., which is at the cutting edge a lot of this data analytics science stuff, at least from a, a, from a use may not be, you know, there's lots of countries in the world that have skill sets around doing the analytics, but in terms of like companies' use of data to, as in their products, you know, the U.S. and China are probably, you know, China's increasingly, but the U.S. has been a pretty you know, innovative market. Mm -hmm. So we operate in an innovative market and then we build stuff that's, you know, we, we try and operate at the edge and then we never, there's no slowing down. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on this Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. After you've rated the show, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies, including our 2015 cover story, Profiling IRI.